This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Last time in chapters 21 and 22 of Joshua, Joshua allocated two remaining provisions for land, one to the Levites and one for murderers. Cities of refuge are set aside for murderers. And we learned about that way back in Leviticus, or maybe it was Deuteronomy. I can't remember which one. And 48 towns throughout the 12 tribes were set aside for the Levites. Now, remember, the Levites don't really have an inheritance because they are to be the priests. But these were towns that were set aside for them to be able to keep their livestock and to be able to keep the land and the the buildings where they live and all of that stuff. And have a home so they could serve the people in that area. Right. God had fulfilled his promise to give Abraham's descendants the land. God has fulfilled his promise to us too. We have the promised kingdom of an eternal home with him. And this is one of the things I love the most about the book of Joshua. Every single promise is fulfilled in this book yeah. that God made to the Israelites. And it's really special. Yeah, Joshua's, Joshua was special. You just didn't have as much complaining as you did um, during Moses' time. But I don't love all the names in Joshua, but I do. You've love- done a really good job getting through those names. So no, not a lot of names today. So today we kind of return to our narrative a little bit and... Um, and we're, we're closing out in just two more episodes, this one and next week. So in this episode, we have the return of Phineas, the killer priest, but that takes place inside the East-West or Trans-Cis-Jordan controversy. Now, you've heard me say Trans-Jordan. Those are the tribes on the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong side of the river. Cis-Jordan. Those are the, the seven and a half tribes on the right side. So just, we're going to talk a lot about them. So just know the difference. Now, apparently living on the wrong side of the river was really a thing. And the partiality was palpable. It's going to be the cause of today's controversy. Before the Transjordan tribes even cross the river for home on the wrong side, the nation threatens to self-destruct. The story opens in chapter 22. In scene one, Joshua sends the Transjordan tribes home. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised. Return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So these last words, Moses said almost the exact same thing in Deuteronomy 10, 12. Listen to what he said. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. And Moses didn't just say it here. He said it also in Deuteronomy 11.22, Deuteronomy 19.8, and Deuteronomy 30.20. But Joshua summed up God's commands and Moses' words here. He commends them on their faithfulness. He challenges them to remain faithful. And I love that Joshua is so succinct. I love Moses too, but he repeats himself a lot more. Joshua, being a warrior, gets straight to the point and lays it out. 
But he's so faithful to Moses. He has remembered every word and he he carries that through to the Israelites now that they're in the land. And the Israelites know every word probably too because they meditate on it and they read it. So they knew exactly what he was talking about when he said it. But when you say meditate, remember that was one of Joshua's first commands was that he was to keep the word close to him and study it. And he really does. Continuing in verse six, then Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their homes. To the half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given the land in Bashan. And to the other half tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. This last sentence is written in parentheses and stuck in here by the author. It seems insignificant, but it sets the stage for the dispute that follows. Manasseh is the one tribe that belongs to both the trans and cis Jordan tribes. Their land is split by the river. Moses gave half of the tribe their land and Joshua gave the other half their land. Manasseh is kind of this bridge between the two sides of the Jordan and the two sides of Israel and may have been a strategic plan by Moses and Joshua to ensure unity in the nation. We don't think of rivers today as being a big divider, but to them, remember, they didn't have a bridge, right? They didn't have a bridge that God had to do a miracle for them to cross or they had to get in a little boat. So it was a big deal. So do you think Moses, Moses couldn't have known that Joshua was going to give the other side to the half other half of the tribe the other half of land to the to the right well he probably did because again to the two tribes reuben and gad asked for land and then somehow remember half of manasseh got added to it we don't know how so it was probably assumed that the other half would get land in the promised land um, now I will say this: there are there's a lot of discussion among the commentaries of, you know, was the Transjordan land part of the Promised Land? Was it like adopted into the Promised Land, or wasn't it? It is very interesting when you analyze the nuances of how they talk about it. Um, that kind of imply the mentality was it was not. However, Israel is a nation, and they're living on both sides, so. I can't say whether it was or it wasn't in God's eyes. Moses gave it. And so um, it may have been, but it's not always included. Interesting. Yeah. Continuing on in verse seven, when Joshua sent them home, he blessed them saying, return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and great quantity of clothing and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Silo in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. So this is the first mention of dividing the plunder um, from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. And that was a tradition, remember, not every man went to war. But if when when a, a warrior came back to his tribe, he was expected to divide it up. And David is actually going to talk more about this later in the Bible. But it's, it's a great concept and one that Israel adhered to. Now, after commending them on their faithfulness and instructing them on how to stay faithful to God, Joshua blessed those Transjordan tribes and sent them on their way. And all is good. Scene two, the Transjordan tribes decide to build an altar. Verse 10. When they came to Gilioth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. The Transjordan tribes make it as far as the Jordan River before they falter. 
Did doubt set in or was it there before they left? We just don't know. They are leaving the land of Canaan for the land of Gilead. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. The Israelites never included the land of Gilead when speaking of the promised land. So is it a part of the promise or no? We don't know. What would their status be going forward? Will they be second-class citizens? Will their relationship with Israel be forgotten altogether? Moses gave them the Gilead land. Joshua commended them for helping claim the Canaanite land. Both of these are good things from two really great leaders. But would the Cisjordan Israelites remember how faithful the Transjordan Israelites had been? The Transjordan tribes come up with an idea sitting there on the bank of the Jordan before they crossed over. What did one do at the time when they wanted to remember something in those days? Well, they built an altar. So they decided they would build a huge one so everyone for miles around could see it and and remember their fellow Israelites across the river. So I guess by the way you're talking, this altar wasn't really an altar that was meant for sacrificing to the Lord. This is an altar that's kind of maybe another idol. Well, you have the right thought, but the Israelites did not. So scene three, the Cisjordan tribes jump at the chance to judge their Transjordan brothers. Verse 11. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileath near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. One sentence and they're going to war. This sentence reveals the prejudice that was lying in wait for an opportunity to pounce. It says, near the Jordan on the Israelite side. But they're all Israelites. Exactly. Are they implying that the other side is not Israel? Because it's definitely inhabited by Israelites, two and a half tribes of Israelites, who not not just only a few days earlier were commended by Joshua for gallantly fighting for Israel. But all that is forgotten in a hot minute as the Israelites gather for war against their brothers. Where was Joshua? I don't know because he's not in this story. And where is the other half tribe of Manasseh living on the right side of the river? Are they equally biased against their own tribe already? Did no one stop to think, to ask why they were building the altar? Did anyone think to pray first? No, no, and no. Take note, trust is so tricky. But as believers, we should be the most patient in our trust, giving all the benefit of the doubt. In other words, we should accept someone is honest, even when there are reasons to doubt. Yeah, we just need to assume positive intent. Yes, until proven guilty. And I think today in today's culture, we tend to assume negative intent. And that's how come everybody's so offended by everything. People jump on social media like, you know, it goes crazy. Yeah. So the question is, are you patient to wait for understanding or are you quick to assume the worst about others? All right. Scene four, the tribes face off. Verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent 10 of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. Uh-oh, it is never a good sign if they send Phineas. Phineas is not your average priest. 
Phineas is a zealous defender of God and his laws. Remember in Numbers 25, 6, season four, episode 13, Phineas is the killer priest who speared a Midianite temple prostitute and her Israel lover together. One spear, two people caught in the act. The priest is a beast. The fact that the Israelites chose Phineas sent a message that the Cisjordan tribes are not messing around. The Transjordan tribes had sinned in their opinion, and Phineas, the killer priest, would bring them down. So it's kind of like when my son gets sent to the principal's office <laughs> in his high school. It's like Phineas <laughs> is the principal. Yeah. yeah. You know, because otherwise you'd just be sent to um, a guidance counselor. He <laughs> <laughs> would just pat you on the head yeah, and say, there, there, go back to class. That's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is serious. Continuing in verse 15. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And you are now turning away from the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share this land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not the wrath of the whole community come on Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. The Cisjordan tribes make two accusations using two past examples to justify their anger. The first was the sin of Peor. This was an act of rebellion in Numbers 25. The Israelites had been worshiping Baal of Peor by indulging in sexual immorality. Baalism was a fertility cult with temple prostitutes and sexual sacrificing. As a result of what they did, God sent a plague on Israel because of their unfaithfulness. When Phineas speared the Israelite and the and one of the women, the plague stopped. So they're using this to say, if you don't stop this, we're all going to die or, or a bunch of us, because I, I want to say there were 27,000 that died in that plague. The second example they give is the sin of Achan. This was an act of disobedience from Joshua 7. The Israelites were commanded to destroy everything in Jericho. It was a harem battle. Achan did not. He took silver and gold and a robe and he kept them and hid them. In the very next battle that Israel took part in, they were routed and 36 men were killed. Joshua was distraught and questioned God, like, I thought you were going to go before us. You know, you're going to be with us. What happened? And God revealed that Achan had taken things. To the Cisjordan tribes, the Transjordan tribes have disobeyed God by building altars and rebelled against God by worshiping other gods. And so they are feeling that they need to annihilate them, take action for God, or they themselves will be punished. Now, the Cisjordan tribe solution is this. It's for the Transjordan tribes to leave their defiled land and move over to the Lord's land. There's that prejudice again, implying that the land on the east of the Jordan is not the Lord's land, even though Moses gave it to them. 
the Transjordan tribes respond to the accusations of rebellion and disobedience like this. Verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what did you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And as we said, if they ever say this to us, to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So you are spot on. <laughs> it was not for sacrifices. They did this um, as a memorial, a reminder. The Transjordan tribes explain and defend their actions vehemently. The motivation for building the altar was fear. Fear that the second class Israelites would be shut out. They were considered the second class citizens, that they would be shut out of the tabernacle, which means they would be shut out of the presence of God and eventually probably the nation of Israel. The purpose of the altar was to serve as a reminder of the relationship between the tribes on both sides of the Jordan. The altar was not built to offer sacrifices. Yeah, but this is also evidence of lack of trust on either side. Because, Correct. Because neither one of them are assuming positive intent. They're, one is assuming that the other ones are going to disown their descendants. So they feel like they need to build this altar. And then the other ones are assuming that they've turned away from the Lord. So this, all this conflict just could have been avoided if everyone had just assumed positive intent on the other side. Or been more communicative. Communication yeah. brings collaboration. And they could have easily... So they, the Israelites, the cisjordan Israelites heard that this had been built. It must have been a rumor. It wouldn't have been a rumor if the Transjordan tribes had sent a note. Hey, hey send a runner back <laughs> and tell them, we're feeling this way and we just want to build this thing. It's just going to be a reminder. Um, or had they been feeling that way before they left, they would have addressed their feelings. We feel like second class citizens, guys. Can we talk about this? <laughs> and the tribe of Manasseh, which was on both sides, would have been the perfect tribe to bring it up. Manasseh was from the from Joseph, well-respected um, patriarch. They had a lot of, you know, Mas Manasseh and Ephraim had a lot of clout. They could have easily brought it up. Hey, we fought hard. You know, we're on both sides. We don't want to feel split. Like one side is better than the other side. Let's talk about this. So many things could have happened to avoid this. So there's your lesson in positive <laughs> communication yeah. and avoidance of conflict straight from the book of Joshua. Exactly. The motive of the Transjordan tribes 
was good. They just didn't explain it well. Well, the Cisjordan tribes fortunately respond with relief. Verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. God intervened and Phineas had the intelligence to listen first before he speared them all. Phineas credits the Transjordan tribes with the opposite of being unfaithful. So they were being told they were being unfaithful. And he credits them that they have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's anger by explaining what they were doing. If Phineas and the Cisjordan leaders had started a war with the Transjordans, God would have been really angry. So, you know, their explanation spared them, the whole nation, not just the Transjordans. All right, scene five, all of the Cisjordan Israelites praise God for the results. Verse 32, then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and they praised God and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the altar is legit if Phineas says so, and he did, and everyone is glad to hear it. However, the tribe of Manasseh is oddly missing in the description of those who live in Gilead. And one has to wonder if it was because half of Manasseh is represented in the Cisjordan, so the tribe is not completely a second-class Israelite tribe, whereas the Reubenites and Gadites, well, they all live in Gilead. Or maybe because half of the Manasseh tribe is present and they couldn't speak poorly about them. The altar is left to stand on the West Bank as a reminder built by those who live on the East Bank a witness between them and between us to remember that if we get in a difficult situation where we want to jump to conclusions, we need to think twice or we may develop a reputation like Phineas the killer priest. Although in this case, he was, he's always spot on, actually. He's a good priest. Chapter 23, Joshua's farewell to the leaders. Joshua is 110 years old. He knows it is time to say goodbye. And like Moses, he has a few things he wants to say. Fortunately, he has a lot fewer words than Moses because Moses was the teacher leader of Israel, a man of words, who, interestingly enough, in the beginning, doubted that he could even speak. But God encouraged him by giving him a spokesperson, his brother Aaron. Joshua was the warrior leader of Israel, a man of action, not words, who often doubted that he could fight and win. But God encouraged him by telling him that he would be with him and to be strong and courageous. These were two very different leaders with unique gifts, one a man of words, one a man of action, both used by God for the same purpose and for the same people to get Israel into the promised land as a nation. Joshua is always faithful to his mentor, Moses, and he remembers his wise words and actually borrows many from the book of Deuteronomy for his final speech to the people. With all the Israelite leaders gathered somberly in front of him, 
and thousands of Israelites behind them, Joshua begins with an exhortation to remember, just like Moses did. Verse 23, after a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel and their elders, leaders, judges, and officials and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done in all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. You know, when we were in Deuteronomy, sometimes I would get kind of frustrated that Moses repeated over and over again. But you see Joshua doing the same thing. And I think... Part of the demise of the Israelites as we go forward is that they didn't have that leader that constantly reminded them. In its redundancy, it keeps you grounded and maybe something that would be really good for us today because we don't read the word like even, you know, our the the fathers of the faith that have been in our time, like Calvin and all those other people you think of, you know, that just lived in the word all the time. That's a good advice for the word and also a good advice for a leader, because sometimes you feel like you told your team something one time and they should know it, but you really should say it over and over in not the same exact way, maybe in a meeting and then another month or something, say it again. And don't assume that everybody just remembers every word you said. Or like your kids. Your kids. Your husband. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, stop there. I should tell my husband things over and over and over and over. No, I won't stop do there. that. Okay. That's called nagging. Exactly. Joshua wants the Israelites to remember what God has done. He conquered the nations, he gave them the land, and he will continue to drive the Canaanites out and they will possess the land. It does sound like they had not finished the job of driving out the Canaanites, or perhaps there was a constant Canaanite creep back into the land. Regardless, their presence is a serious threat to Israel and a grave concern of Joshua's. So he encourages them as God encouraged him to be strong. Then Joshua encourages them to obey. Verse six, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the left or the right. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Joshua wants them to stay on the straight path that leads to God. And I have to wonder if he's thinking, please stay on the straight path because you don't want to wander in that desert anymore. You know, the poor guy wandered in the desert for 40 years. He's one of the few that was alive the whole time. He wants them to obey the law without turning to the right or to the left, because either way you turn, you're going to end up wandering. He says, do not associate with the Canaanites. Do not worship their gods. Do not serve their gods. Hold fast to God. The Hebrew word used here is dabak, which means to cling so tightly as to leave not even the smallest crack for other gods to come between them. The question for us is, 
How tightly are you clinging to God? Is there any chance of anything or anyone coming between you and the Lord? Next up, Joshua reminds them not to forget that the Lord fights for them. Verse 9, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. So one of you routes a thousand is a kickback to a prior chapter. He mentioned that before. And those are great odds. They don't have to worry about anything or be afraid of anything because with God, it just takes one of them against thousands. God fights for them just as he promised. So be very careful, he ends, to love him in return. It's so interesting. Interesting to me that God does so much for us, like difficult things, battles, whatever. And all we have to do is love him. Then Joshua gives them the warning about what will happen if they fail again, similar to Moses. Verse 12. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, with all your heart and soul that not not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Joshua says, remember that every promise has been fulfilled. God promises good things, good land, actually five goods in all. Good land is used three of the five times. God has delivered his part of the covenant. They must be faithful to keep their part of the covenant. But if they don't, the good, good, good will be gone, gone, gone. God will drive the Israelites out of the land that they had just received as he did drive out the Canaanites before them. From the beginning of our journey in the Bible, we have read about the choice between good and evil. We are all on a path full of choices. We discussed that path between good and evil back in season one. And we have a chart that we'll put in the show notes again of the path to good and evil and how to avoid bad choices. Joshua is making a case for the Israelites to choose good, not evil. Moses said it this way in Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day, I call the heavens and all the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the next episode, the last episode for season six, the book of Joshua, our hero will make his final demand of the Israelites to choose for themselves in his own words, not Moses's. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. 
New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.